Michael Vonden. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And if you've watched some of my earlier videos, you'll know that I did one on Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, and particularly the theme that he discusses of subcreation, the idea that we are created by a creator because he was a Catholic, and because we are created in the image of that creator, we ourselves are kind of designed to also create in our own fashion, which obviously in Tolkien's worldview, God creates ex nihilo. We don't do that, but we do have a creative streak in us, and that's why we do things like poetry, art, and all this other stuff. So with that in mind, in this video, what I want to talk about is how Tolkien took that idea and made it not just a kind of a philosophical idea in his head, but also used it as a major theme in the Silmarillion. And if you've read the Silmarillion, you might have caught this before and you might not have, but uh, I think by the time you get through the end of this video, you'll definitely see that he definitely puts a lot of uh, emphasis on the idea of creation by creatures that can lead to either good, bad, or mixed results. So let's talk about, in this video, three people in the Silmarillion who tried to do their own creating in ways that had mostly negative effects but uh, could be turned to good and how Tolkien handled that thematically. And those three people are Melkor slash Morgoth, the, uh, the devil archetype in the Middle-earth realm. Aule, one of the other Valar, who is kind of like a um, an equivalent to the Greek Hephaestus, um, the the smith god, and Feanor, the elf who creates the Silmarils. And I'll take each of these in their turn, discuss how the theme of subcreation kind of uh, really impacts their storylines, and then at the end I'll also cover just a few smaller examples of that in the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings. So let's get started. So the first main example we have is Melkor, or as he later becomes known, Morgoth. And his dealings with the idea of subcreation kind of come in two phases. The first phase is before the creation of the world even starts, Melkor is looking for the, the secret fire that is what allows Eru Iluvatar, the god figure of the Middle-earth world, to do what he does, to create the real creation that Eru Iluvatar does. And he's of course unable to find this because the secret fire is within Iluvatar himself. And this, you know, from Tolkien's point of view, this may be a reference to the idea of the Holy Spirit or something like that. It's not really clear. It's definitely not supposed to be allegorical in any sense, but he's trying to find his own way to do his own creating because he wants to do his own thing. And that's kind of the beginning stages of his uh, fall, really. And he can't find that. And so when Eru Iluvatar begins the great music of the Ainur, which is the means by which he creates the world of Middle-earth, Melkor decides to kind of take things into his own hands mess with the music, create his own themes of, in the music, and Tolkien makes it clear these themes are not very good, they're not even very creative, and they're destructive as far as they mess up the rest of the, the great symphony that's taking place. So you get the idea here that Melkor, in an attempt to be a sub-creator, 
is not really trying to be a sub-creator. He's trying to be a, a creator of his own. He's trying to be the head honcho in the group. And because of that pride, he kind of misses out on what he, his real role is and how he's really supposed to interact with everybody else because he's not the grand overarching mastermind behind the entire thing. So this leads to a lot of different changes in how Middle-earth comes to be. And if you read that passage in the Silmarillion, what you find is that Eru Iluvatar uses the the themes that Melkor creates and then weaves them into the overall symphony in ways that changes the way that Middle-earth comes to be. So, for example, he tells Ulmo, the, the Valar who is most associated with water, you know, Melkor added all this extreme heat and extreme cold. I took that and I used it with water to give, you know, clouds, ice, and these other things that have a beauty of their own. So there's that aspect of Melkor's sub-creative activity that we can see Tolkien weaving into the idea that if you try to overachieve your ability to create, you're probably just going to create harmful things, but those harmful things could still be used by, you know, in this case, the, the god of the Silmarillion world to bring about ends that are not wholly bad. They're, they can still be used to achieve some kind of good. The second part of Melkor's uh, sub-creative type of activity uh, comes when we get to the actual creation of Arda, the world of Middle-earth, and Melkor kind of separates himself from the rest of the Valar. He wants to kind of mess up the world, do his own thing with it, and he's constantly wrecking everything the other Valar do, and part of that involves corrupting the things that are in Middle-earth, and that includes, you know, beasts. Uh, when elves come along the scene, he corrupts them into orcs. Uh, basically, he corrupts most everything and turns it into something twisted and, and really contrary to its purpose and downright evil. And so you could kind of see this other half where it's not so much... It's showing his incompetence in doing what he actually wants to do. He can't create anything of his own, you know, his own volition. He can't bring anything into existence on his own because he's not the god figure. He just... He just really wants to be that, and that's kind of his sin of pride, so to speak, very much like the devil in traditional Christian thinking. So you can very much see, <clears throat> sorry, you can very much see Tolkien's kind of Christianity playing into Melkor's particularly interesting way of dealing with the subcreative aspect. But um, I mean, you've got trolls, which are kind of a mockery of ints. You've got orcs, which are a kind of a twisted version of elves. And you've got other things like, you know, giant spiders and all kinds of other really nasty things going on. The spiders are probably all descended from Ungoliant, which I haven't really talked about before, but if you know some really, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then there's dragons. You get the idea that he kind of took Maiar and, and kind of shaped them kind of into their in, into the a dragon shape. I mean, it's not really clear how dragons came about, but it's part of his own plan, and they're clearly not something that he just created out of the blue. Um, so very much Melkor's entire process of trying to be creative always fails, and he always ends up just taking what was already there and twisting it into something horrible just so it can be his own, even if it ends up being horrible, ugly, evil, 
and just not, you know, worth having at all. So that's Melkor, and that's really the most explicitly borrowed from a Christian point of view. But the next two, Feanor and Aule, are actually, he touches on very different themes for both of them. So let's talk about them. So Aule actually comes earlier than Feanor, but Feanor's a little more closely linked to Melkor in a sense, so I want to discuss him first. And the reason I say that, Feanor actually creates something, and the weird thing is what he creates is actually more creative than anything that Melkor does. Melkor mostly just messes up things. Feanor doesn't per se create anything in the sense that he doesn't bring anything into existence out of nothing, because only Eru Iluvatar can do that, but he does create the Silmarils, these three gems that are unlike anything else in the world, and they're very much a, uh, they're highly regarded even by the Valar for their beauty, and the, he's very highly praised for his ability to do this. He's the greatest craftsman ever to live in Middle-earth. So there's very much something there of a true creative spirit uh, being used in a way in its highest form, and to that extent, Feanor is fine. The problem comes in because Feanor, and this is partially on on the goading of Melkor, who's trying to kind of poison his mind against the Valar because he's jealous, but Feanor is increasingly wary of the idea that the Valar are going to take the Silmarils from him. And part of the the basis for that, the 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 hook that Melkor uses and and what makes this fear kind of real is the fact that the Silmarils encapture the light of the two trees that um, um, Yavanna, I believe it was, was one of the other Valar, uh, created, which give light to Valinor. This is before the sun and the moon are created in Tolkien's world. The light comes from these two trees. One is golden, one is silver, and he captures the light of these trees in these three Silmarils. So he's very much aware of the fact that what he's created still borrows from things that were made by creatures greater than him, namely the Valar. So that fear is not entirely baseless. It, it's baseless in the sense that he has no reason to think that the Valar are actually going to take the Silmarils. They don't really have a reason to. They still have the trees. But it, it definitely plants the idea in his head, and so he becomes extremely possessive Sorry, I've got some flib left over from a cold, so I'm a little stuffy. Um, his possessiveness over these Silmarils, of course, is what leads ultimately to the the rebellion and exile of the Noldor, because eventually Morgoth kills the two trees with the help of Ungoliant. Sorry. And after he does that, the, the Valar ask, they ask, they don't demand, they ask uh, for the Silmarils, which contain the same light of the trees, in the hope that they can revive the trees or otherwise kind of repair the situation. Feanor, instead of seeing this as he should, which is, you know, this is something that I've kind of created with borrowed, borrowed benefits from other people and, you know... For the good of all, I should give at least one of them back in the hopes that we can make things better. He sees this as a fruition uh, a coming true of his fear of the Valar just going to take my stuff. 
and that's what leads him to rebel, leave Valinor, and the rest of the, well, not all the Noldor, but a good chunk of the Noldor follow him, and that's how the real storyline of the Silmarillion gets started. So very much the theme with Feanor is not so much that he's trying to create beyond his his level. He, he's very much within his level, and he does really great things with his skill and ability. But it's it's the idea that what you create, you shouldn't be too too enamored of or too attached to, because anything that you do create, you are using things that are already out there to do your creating, and therefore... If you become too attached to it, you can that that possessiveness can lead you to do really, really bad things. So that's kind of Feanor's story, and that and the reason I wanted to do him next is because he definitely has that bad guy element to him, much like Melkor. Whereas Aule, who I'll discuss next, there's no real malice ever involved. There's no real problems involved. There's you know there's there's a failing on Aule's part, but I'll get to that in just a minute. So Aule, one of the twelve Valar who kind of are the ruling greater angels who enter the, well, the world of Arda or Middle-earth, his kind of thing is, you know, dealing with stone, smithing, that kind of thing. He's, he's very similar to uh, the Noldor in the sense that he's much more interested in crafting, making things, um... And if you're not familiar with the terminology, I should have mentioned Noldor are the are one of three families of elves. There's the Noldor, the Tellery, and the Vanyar. They each have the, kind of their own specialties. The Tellery are much more interested in singing in the sea. The Noldor are interested in crafting and making things, and that includes language, which, of course, Tolkien being the language guy that he is, you kind of expect that to pop up somewhere. The Vanyar are more or less just kind of the most holy the most attuned to the Valar. They're, they don't have a whole lot of particular play in most of the story because almost all of them go to Val Valinor and stay there. So they don't pop up much. You don't really learn a whole lot about them other than they're the most faithful to the Valar. Aule is a lot like the Noldor, and so he, his interests lie in some of the same types of things. Now, at before the arrival of elves in Middle-earth, he actually kind of gets impatient for the children of Iluvatar, which the Valar know are coming, um, but they haven't come yet, and he's like, I want to get this done. I, you know, I'm really looking forward to being able to interact with other intelligent races that, that I can do things with. So what he does is he creates dwarves. He builds, you know, what we know of as dwarves in Tolkien's stories, and because they're kind of made after his own mold, they're very much into stones, quarrying, smithying, that type of thing. And because of the types of things that they're going to be doing, they're made in a very stocky, sturdy, hardy frame. And that's why they're the way they are. They're short, but very strong in build and very enduring and that sort of thing. But what's interesting is Aule, of course, is trying to do things before the time that they're really meant to happen. And so after he creates the dwarves, Eru Iluvatar basically comes and says, you know, you, you're really kind of breaking the rules here. You're not supposed to be creating things. Everything's going to happen in my good time. Aule is 
because he's, you know, he's a good guy and not like Melkor. He's sorrowful and, and apologetic. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just impatient. And he takes his, well, I should mention too, Eru makes the point that, you know, these things that you've created, they're essentially just robots. They're automata. They're not, they're not thinking, feeling beings because Aule doesn't have the, the capacity to create thinking, feeling beings the way that Eru Iluvatar does. Again, that kind of goes back to that secret fire. You know, he can put things together, but he can't really give them a mind and a soul. So Aule is repentant and he takes up his hammer and he's about to smash the dwarves that he's created. And then he sees that one of the, the dwarf he's about to smash suddenly recoils in fear, which doesn't make any sense. And he's like, wait, what? Eru Iluvatar, recognizing that what Aule did was out of, you know, at least out of a good intention, uh, kind of half granted his wish and basically said, you know, I will make these things that you've created, you know, living, thinking beings that that can actually do what you want them to do. But they still have to wait until after, you know, the, the ones that I have prepared come into the world. So you end up with, um, the dwarves end up actually being separated into seven different areas, each with their own leader. And they're kind of just put to rest in the mountains until it's their time to awaken. So that's how dwarves come into existence. But it the highlights the idea that you know, our, our tendency to want to create things can, you know, we can kind of try to achieve above our station and f fail ultimately because Melkor fails. But whereas Melkor didn't really accept his failure, didn't really accept his limits and therefore turned his creativity into just a mean spite against all of creation, trying to ruin it. Aule kind of recognizes, yeah, I'm really shooting above what I'm capable of, and I'm sorry I won't do that again. He's a very interesting counterpoint, therefore, to Melkor, and he's also a counterpoint to Feanor because he doesn't become overly attached to him. He's willing to get rid of them when he realizes, and it's brought to his attention, that what he's done is wrong. So that's kind of the 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 flip side to both Melkor and Feanor in in two different ways and so that's why I wanted to handle him last because he kind of counterpoints both of them so that's the three main elements of uh, the theming of subcreation in the Silmarillion in the next and last section I'm going to talk about a few other elements that are similar to that uh, that take place in the Silmarillion that are a little smaller and also one from the Lord of the Rings slash Silmarillion so in the Silmarillion, of course, after the elves, the Noldor particularly, return to Middle-earth, they have, well, they set up various different kingdoms because they kind of end up with a split in loyalties. Uh, the ones that are most closely related to Feanor don't necessarily like some of the other ones as much, and it, it gets complicated, but the uh, there's a couple of them that end up forming kingdoms that become important later in the story because they're hidden kingdoms, they last longer than most, um, and they end up being problematic for similar reasons as Feanor's own creation of the Silmarils. So you have uh, two elven kings who they, you know, one of them actually ends up being the high king of the Noldor at some point, the other does not. Um, but you have Finrod, who ends up being known as Felagund, 
I think that's a name given him by the dwarves, actually. He begin. He starts a kingdom that's kind of in a cave at the at the mouth or fork of a river. I can't remember which now. Um, and it's a very very well guarded, very secret place. And then you've got uh, Turgon, who is basically told by Ulmo at some point, "Look, go go to this place that I'm going to show you. It's very hidden. It'll keep you safe until it's time to leave, and then try to go back to Valinor at some point." So Finrod is, he's not as possessive about his kingdom, but both of these have the idea that they're supposed to be hidden, and both of them are very much, you know, aware of the idea that, you know, this is a nice place to live, we've built it up. Um, Finrod ends up uh, losing his kingdom because of Turin and some of the things that he does, if you're familiar with Turin's story. Uh, he, uh, that's a long story, I don't want to get into it, but the flip side of that is Turgon, who theoretically built Gondolin, which is the, the the hidden city in the mountains, with the knowledge that eventually that city was going to be abandoned in favor of trying to return to Valinor. And the problem is once uh, here, ugh, Tuor rather, once Tuor arrives on as Ulmo's messenger and tells him the time has come get ready to leave Gondolin, we're going to go try to go back to Valinor. He, like Feanor, has become so possessive in the sense that he has created this city. They've made it very much like, you know, their old home back in Valinor. They don't want to leave what they've created. And, of course, this leads to the slaughter of many of the elves when Gondolin is finally revealed to Melkor through treachery, and it's ultimately destroyed, and Many elves do escape, but many more would have escaped if Turgon had just listened to the message when it came, and you know he wouldn't have lost you know nearly as many of of his people, and in fact his own life. Um, so it's again carrying forward that theme of really really possessive. You know I made this; it's mine. I like it. I'm not going to give it up just because you know somebody much wiser than me tells me to. So. There's again that same theme, just in a much smaller scale, smaller in the sense of less important. Obviously, a city is bigger than a Silmaril, but the Silmaril is it's unique in the world. It's not, you know, it's not a city that can be rebuilt. So that's kind of that idea. And then you get in the kind of transitioning into the Lord of the Rings, but before the Lord of the Rings actually occurs, you get Sauron creating. The, the one ring to rule the rest of the rings, and even the elves creating their own rings to do their own thing. So the three elven rings, kind of their main purpose is to maintain as much of the beauty and, and what they like about Middle-earth and protect it from decay as possible. Again, you get that element of we're trying to keep something that really isn't made to last. It's not you know, I mean, a lot of the elves who actually stay in Middle-earth stay because they still have that kind of possessive idea of, I like it here, this is kind of my home, I want it. Um, there's also kind of an element of, I'm free here, whereas in Valinor, I'm not, not kind of under other people. Uh, so there's a little bit of that too. But then, of course, Sauron turns all of that around on them through the use of the One Ring, 
which he is kind of his biggest creation and undoes more or less everything they do until he finally loses the ring in, in his battle with uh, the Last Alliance. And once he loses the ring, the other rings are free to do what they do, but the problem is, you know, once he re if he ever re recovered the ring, then everything they had done with the, the three elven rings would be undone. Everything would be for naught, basically. So, I mean, you still, even in Lord of the Rings, you still get the same kind of themes of sub-creation, how it can be used for good, how it can be undone or turned to evil. You get a lot of it. And so it's very much a theme that Tolkien carries through a huge amount of his his fictional writing. So it's, while it's important in its own right in on fairy stories as a kind of a philosophical idea as for how we as humans act, it's even more important to realize that he has that in the back of his mind when reading The Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings because he very much puts that idea into a whole lot of different circumstances and you can see the different ways that sub-creation plays itself out depending on the character of the person doing the creating. And so, you know, the next time you read The Silmarillion or The Lord of the Rings, pay attention to that theme. Pay attention to things that people create, things that, uh, how they use the things they create and all that sort of stuff, and you'll probably find some interesting insights. So anyway, that'll wrap up this video. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Hope you, hope you learned something interesting. If you did, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, if you don't want to subscribe on YouTube, you can also follow me on Twitter and get all the links to these videos at JRRT Lore. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadie.